Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by the new podcast, Anomaly. Vanessa, one of my favorite YouTube holes to go down is like role play fantasy tabletop multiplayer games where I don't really know any of the people playing, but I love watching them have an adventure. Well, Casper, then you would love Anomaly. It's a role-playing meditation podcast that takes you into a world of magic and fantasy. You'll be invited to imagine yourself in scenarios such as learning to cast a tranquility spell or exploring a land once vanquished by a dragon, but all connected by a shared mythology. I am genuinely going to download this right now. This sounds amazing. (laughs) This podcast combines traits of a great dungeon master and those of a talented meditation guide, weaving tales of fantasy that stretch the imagination while you learn to center yourself, offer forgiveness, find confidence, and relieve stress. This is available now on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. It's Anomaly spelled with an I-E at the end and not a Y. Go to S-E-E-K-A-N-O-M-A- L-I-E dot com. That's SeekAnomaly.com to find out more. Chapter 20. The First Task. Harry got up on Sunday morning and dressed so inattentively that it was a while before he realized he was trying to pull his hat onto his foot instead of his sock. When he'd finally got all his clothes on the right parts of his body, he hurried off to find Hermione, locating her at the Gryffindor table in the Great Hall, where she was eating breakfast with Ginny. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Margaret H. Billison. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Just one announcement this week, listeners. Please remember that you can subscribe to commercial-free episodes on iTunes. And also, while you're there, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We love to hear from you. We love to hear what you like about the show. And, and it really helps us when you, when you rate us highly on iTunes. Our friend and co-host Vanessa Zoltan is away on sabbatical, and that means that over the next four weeks, we are going to have amazing co-hosts join us here on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week, we have the amazing Margaret H. Willison, who is a culture writer and podcaster. She also is part of the newsletter Two Bossy Dames, which you should absolutely subscribe to. And she's also a member of the communications team here at Not Sorry and serves as faculty on many of our trips and classes. Thank you so much for joining us, Margaret, today. I'm excited to be here, Matt. This is this is my first time on the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, like doing a full episode. And I feel ready. <laughs> I'm super excited, too. You are a seasoned podcaster. You're on one of my favorite podcasts, <laughs> the Pop Culture Happy Hour sometimes. So this is this is exciting for me, too. So we're, we can't wait to get into the chapter with you and hear about intelligence, which is our theme. And I think you're going to tell us a story about intelligence today. I am going to tell you guys a story about intelligence today. I've thought a lot about my own relationship with it and sort of like my understanding of how it distinguishes itself from a lot of other ways you can talk about being sort of like smart or learned. And for me, what intelligence has always felt like is it's like the stuff you just kind of know innately. It is just 
being able to step into a new subject and orient yourself to it immediately. So that's like a very particular skill. And what I have a really ambivalent relationship with, which I think is healthy. And what informs the ambivalence of my relationship with it is I went to a magnet school here in Boston. It's a public school, but to get into it, you have to take a qualifying exam. And there, I always felt like a bit of a dummy. I could get by, but I struggled a lot. And I never got good grades the way I sort of felt like I should and the way my older brother did and the way I saw people around me doing. And like, to be really smart in that school, you would be like a 12-year-old taking classes at Harvard Extension School for fun. And like, that was my metric. And so I sort of thought that I was kind of holding on to everything by like, you know, my fingernails, just like Hmm. I could fall off a cliff at any moment. A lot of that probably was due to some undiagnosed ADHD that I've finally started to address in my 30s. But then it just felt like I couldn't operate on the same level other people were. And when it came time for me to go to college, I was just petrified. And like, you know, I did very well on my English AP exams, but I didn't think that meant anything. (laughs) Because everybody did. And so when I got to college, I could have passed out of intro English, but I didn't. And I remember being in my first class and the word cordial came up and the professor was like, cordial. Now, like, does anyone know like what that means? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's like it's heart's blood. It's from Latin for cordis corday. And I just rattled it off because like to me, it's like, sure, this is what people know. And then I looked up and everyone in the room was looking at me like I'd sprouted a third head. And I was like, wait a second. Am I smart? (laughs) And like the answer was, yeah. Like I have a lot more of this innate orientation to subjects that I think many people get to have. But what I feel was really incredible about sort of not realizing it until I got to that point and being in environments where it was something I was sort of forced to take for granted is that, like, I didn't do anything to be like this, right? Like, I don't feel an identity ownership of it to any greater degree than I would, like, the fact that I have brown hair, right? I know the things where I have intelligence that I've earned through hard work through close engagement, through careful study. And I know what's just quickness, right? And it gives me, I feel like, so much of a healthier sense. Like, earned understanding, to me, is just, like, so much more valuable than statistical aptness. And your whole life as an adult is basically figuring out, like, if you were statistically apt at one point, like, what's that aptitude going to amount to? Like, what are you going to do with it? And so that's my story about intelligence. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, your your story tugs at my heart because of your etymology. <laughs> you know, I love etymology, <laughs> and you did an etymology <laughs> sure. about, about cordial, which is a great way for us to transition to etymology corner. Also, because the etymology of the word intelligence speaks so directly to what you're describing in your story. So so intelligence comes from two words, inter, which means like between or among, and mm-hmm. legere in Latin, which you know, right? Which means to read. But that word in Latin comes from the older root, which means like to gather or to select, right? So intelligence mm-hmm. is not just about having the stuff. It's not just about having the knowledge. It's about like being able to select from among the different pieces of information you have in order to use that knowledge knowledge 
effectively, right? And and what's so interesting about that is like that means intelligence is about a lot more than just like how what kind of mental capacity one has. It has to do with your emotional capacity and your spiritual capacity and social capacity and all the other things that are going on, the things that made you feel not intelligent. You know, at your magnet school were different than the things that helped you to feel intelligent at your undergraduate experience, but you were the same person with the same brain, right? It's just like you were able to select and choose and actually employ that intelligence differently. Completely. And I think that, yeah, and I think that story really speaks to like how intelligence is just about like having the smarts. Some people do and some people don't, but but it's also about having sort of the, I think your language was wisdom, the earned understanding you said to like sort of know how to use what you have to best affect practically. So like that kind of practical element, I think, is really important and your story speaks to it well. Yeah. Everybody comes into the world with a certain amount of presets. This is actually why I've always liked sorting and why, like, in later life, I've also really gotten into astrology because they're these systems that encourage us to think of of personalities as, like, component parts or as, like, an ecosystem where it's like we all have traits that are good and we have traits that we wish were different. And everybody comes into the world with their own set as a starter pack. And like morality isn't in what you start with, right? Morality is always in how do you use what you were given? How do you enhance the benefit of your good parts for the world and for yourself? And how do you protect yourself and others from your shortcomings? Yeah. All right. Well, it's time for our listeners to gauge how well we can apply the knowledge that we have uh, gained in our reading of the chapter (laughs) with a 30-second recap. I think I'm going to go first, Margaret, if that's okay. I appreciate that, Matt. I appreciate that enormously. (laughs) Would you be willing to to count me in? Absolutely. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So Harry wakes up and he's sort of panicking and and not knowing what to do. And he's like, what am I going to do? He's got this clue from Sirius. And so he goes with Hermione to the library and they're studying and they're studying and they're studying and they're not figuring out anything very well. And then they're going off to class and they see uh, Cedric. And he's like, I got to tell Cedric. So he tells Cedric and Cedric's like, are you serious? And then Mad-Eye says, come here. Oh my gosh, come here and let me, that was very good of you, Harry. And he says, here's what you do. And he's like, oh, I'm going to fly. And he practices Akio. And then he goes to the thing and they're all there and McGonald tries to to help him. And then they, they go out and there's a dragon and he gets the, the thing and it's it. Oh, I missed the end. That's all right. But look, that's that's why we have me. It's <laughs> teamwork. Right. It's teamwork, right. Matt. Good. Okay, Margaret, please redeem my attempt. That shows <laughs> show us your intelligence and apply it effectively here. Three, two, one, go. Harry starts the chapter knowing that his first task is going to be dragons. He and Hermione are researching, trying to figure things out. There's one spell that'll do it, but he can't find it. He knows Cedric doesn't know, and he's the only champion who doesn't. So he makes a point of telling him. Moody overhears and is like, way to go. Also, use your firebolt. Right. And then Harry's like, oh, cool. I can use my firebolt. He listens to the other champions go, and they all do various things. But then he goes up in the firebolt. He gets the eggs. He gets out. He gets 10 from Ludo and four from crumb and and then he gets an egg that's that's and he gets it. an egg that's right that's everything so i that's as much as i got uh, let's wrap the podcast i feel like that's the episode's done i feel like we yeah, covered no, it no that's it that's a, we crushed it <laughs> that's right. neither was i mean the one thing i was trying to get oh to my was, God, was ron? ron i know i was like i gotta get to ron if i hit nothing else i gotta get ron i didn't hit ron no and i also missed ron i also missed ron uh yeah it's hard <laughs> So, Margaret, I think I want to start right at the beginning of the chapter because I think, you know, one of the things (laughs) I was thinking about with respect to intelligence in this chapter relates so closely to the way you were describing intelligence in your story or how your story was helping us think through intelligence. (laughs) Because, you know, 
using your story and this etymology, I was thinking about how like intelligence is something about the gap between having knowledge and applying it, or it is the thing that closes that gap between having knowledge and applying it, right? Or having innate kind of skill or innate smart or whatever, and actually being able to use it effectively in a situation. And we see that so clearly, that gap, the size of that gap and the significance of the gap at the beginning of this chapter. So the chapter opens and Harry has gotten this clue, this like unfinished clue from Sirius, Mm -hmm. which is like, it's easy. All you have to do is blank, right? Right. Sirius disappears. (laughs) So he knows there's something and it's meant to be easy, but they don't know what it is. So he goes to, you know, the smartest person at the school, Hermione, and says, like, let's figure this out. You can help me. They go to the library. They're studying. They're studying. He's getting all this information. They're they're anticipating all the possibilities. They're thinking about transfiguration. Mm -hmm. But how would you transfigure something that big? Like, nothing seems as easy as Sirius suggested it would be. (laughs) Right? And like, you can see like this gap because they have access to the information and they have a lot of smarts. Like Hermione's the smartest student in the school (laughs) and Harry's a smart wizard also, right? And like, they are, they have the information, they're studying, they're studying, they're studying. But what they don't know how to do is like, how do we apply all we know to the situation at hand, which is I'm facing a dragon (laughs) in in a few days, right? And so like that gap there is where we can see like what intelligence speaks to and what it means and what it signifies for a person who's actually able to use it. Completely. And I think the other thing that I noticed about this section is that the way that like, if you have an innate skill in a certain area, like you can try and treat your innate skill like it's a Swiss army knife and not recognize like it's just a screwdriver. And like, I think Hermione does genuinely have like an innate skill for research. Like she loves it. She knows how to do it. And by doing it, Many, many times throughout the books, she learns, like, essentially important things that are extremely crucial to the different tasks these folks undertake. But here, actually, her instinct for research is, like, not serving them well. You're right. Because she's looking at all these spells they don't know how to do and have never studied. And, like, she's not focusing in on the thing that needs to be done. And she's not... Like, she doesn't have a problem-solving skill. She doesn't have a necessarily, like, a quick thinking ability that's kicking in here. And conversely, Harry has no aptitude for this. (laughs) And he's just sitting there getting, like, more and more panicked and overwhelmed while this is all going on. Yeah. So it's one of those moments where I think it's important to remember that, like, you're going to try and use your strengths all of the time. And sometimes that's great. Other times it means you are approaching the task in entirely the wrong way. And actually the right way to approach it is through something that you're not necessarily as immediately good at, but that's like more applicable to the situation at hand. Yeah, I think it's right. Like this deluge of information just buries Barry's Harry, right? Exactly. I, as as you know, Margaret and our listeners know, I had recently had a book published, and this book took me forever to write. It was a tremendously difficult book to write. And part of it was, is like, at some point, like, I, I researched too much before I started writing. Like, there's this Ugh, gap, yes. I think. I mean, I'm not an experienced book writer, but I, I've heard other authors say this. Like, at some point, you just have to start writing, because if you start to think about the things you don't know how to write yet— You'll just keep researching and researching forever. And what happened was, like, I, I eventually had this whole pile of research, and then I didn't yeah. know where to start anymore, right? And I kind of had to, like, put it all behind me and just kind of pretend I didn't know all that stuff 100%. and start by saying what I wanted to say and then fold in that stuff later, which is, you know, analogous to what Harry's going through now, which is Completely. he is getting buried. And I, to an extent, I think it's, as you said, Hermione is a skilled researcher. She's a skilled studier. It's giving her comfort. I think she feels like I'm. we're going to find it. 
It's in the answer's 100%. in this library somewhere. And if anybody can find it, I can, and we will. And so she's going for it and going for it. But because that's not where Harry feels comfortable, all that information is just making him feel completely burdened and making it more difficult for him to imagine how he will use the skills he can easily acquire, he's been told, to accomplish this task. Right. The other thing about that, though, is like, you know, and I think your story speaks to this as well, like how individuated intelligence has to be because Hermione cannot get in Harry's inside his body or inside his head and tell him what is the thing that would come easily to him, (laughs) right? Transfiguration comes a lot more easily to Hermione than to him. So she's like, maybe transfiguration, right? And the same thing, you can see it happening when she's trying to teach him how to do the summoning charm. Right. And she's just like, just concentrate. And it's like, you can tell there's this way it feels in her body. Right. Right. There's this. And like, you know what it is. You know what it's like when you just like get something where there's like a knack to it. And it's just impossible to unpack for somebody else. And she obviously gets there because by the end of the chapter, Harry's mastered the summoning spell. But she doesn't have that pedagogical assurance. Yeah. Right. in, In terms of like being outside her own understanding enough. To, right. to describe it to somebody else. Yeah, that's right. And that was something that made me think of the interaction between Harry and Professor Moody, who's just like really, really an interesting character because of course there's this innate duality to him. And like there, you know, we can use intelligence in the sense of like intelligence agents. Like, right. I think there's a reason that this has always been the name for like the polite name for spying. Right. Because it is basically like getting all of the information you need to be oriented in spaces where you're supposed to be lost. Right. Right. And also using it. Right. Like what's interesting about that is like like central intelligence and the central intelligence agency is like it's having the information, but also realizing that you have a goal towards which you are going to use this information. Right. Completely. One of the things that was so striking with me about Moody here and in one of your earlier episodes is how manipulation and skilled pedagogy can actually look exactly the same, right? Because that's what you are seeing with Mad-Eye. In the earlier chapter, it was when he was encouraging Neville about his herbology. And I mean, that's part of this secret plot to seed knowledge that Harry will get to harvest later, right? But it's also like pedagogically really effective. Like he's made Neville feel amazing about himself, And armed him with the information that he needs to help a friend. And like, that's sort of being a good teacher. And like here, it's a similar thing. So in this scene, Moody finds Harry as Harry is doing a very brave and right thing, which is like telling Cedric what the challenge they're going to be facing is. Because he knows all of the other champions know And Cedric's the only one who'd be going in blind. So he takes it upon himself to tell Cedric and... Moody observes this and brings him in, right? And he congratulates him for being a good person. Like, he sees that he's done something well and acknowledges it and celebrates it. Good pedagogy. And then he gives Harry, like, really good advice and, like, good pedagogical advice, which is, like, if you're dealing with something unfamiliar, you start with your strengths. Like, think about what it is that you do really well. Think about what it is that you can do with a... Massive confidence. And like, is that a tool you can apply to this task? Again, it's Harry's walking in there feeling like he's useless. And he walks out with a really clear plan and a sense of like, sense of self pride, right? Sense of self-knowledge. And 
at the same time, he's going off to do exactly what Barty Crouch Jr. as Mad-Eye Moody wants him to do. Exactly the same sort of like sinister end. And that brought forward to me like how fragile like the teacher-student relationship is because it's it's designed to be operating like those are two people with different levels of intelligence, right? One person is oriented in a larger system, in a larger world, and the way the other one isn't, and that's by design. And so if you, as a teacher, with this greater orientation of the world, like you are in a position where you can be incredibly manipulative, where you can really take advantage of that difference versus, you know, using that difference to sort of like help someone pathfind through new territories. And it just brings forward like how careful and responsible you have to be when you're on the side of a dynamic where you have greater intelligence than the other person you're dealing with and how thoughtful you have to be in terms of guiding, right, rather than manipulating and how easy it can be to do the other. Because I think in both cases, like what is essential to the project is building trust. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like if you want if you want to help someone learn, like if you want to teach someone, they have to like trust that you have that their their good intentions and that their flourishing is in your interest. And you have to build trust with them. Right. right? And also because learning can be difficult or you have to like be willing to look not intelligent, like to to get wrong answers. Right. right? And so you have to be with someone you trust who can kind of bring you along. If you're trying to manipulate someone, that's also exactly what you need. You need to build trust with them. What's interesting is that this scene of like trust building slash aid slash manipulation so closely parallels like what's going on in the scene prior to it. Maybe not parallels. It's like the opposite thing. Anyway, yeah. what's going on, you know, the, Moody comes upon Harry speaking to Cedric and Harry is telling Cedric about the dragons. And to my mind, he's displaying in that moment what I would call moral intelligence. You know, I, right. I'm a moral theologian, whatever, like, yeah, like, moral intelligence is something that, like, folks talk about, which is, like, if you think about intelligence as, like, using the information you have in order to attain some goal effectively, like, then you can see what moral intelligence means. It doesn't mean, like, being smart about the history of philosophical ethics. It means, like, more than that. It means, like, taking those facts and actually... Right, you mean knowing how to do the right thing, even if you don't know anything about philosophical ethics. Exactly, right? Like, you might know everything about philosophical ethics and do really poorly, and what's great about, like, you see Harry's moral intelligence because it, the alternative of not telling Cedric, like, barely occurs to him, right? Right. Cedric's, like, impressed that he told him, and Harry's, like, when he thinks about the dragons, he's like, how could I not have told him, right? But you can imagine a lot of other characters in this book, even characters we like and admire, who wouldn't have said anything, right? Like, And equally, I think this is a place where, like, you were saying they're parallel, but actually they're opposite. They're opposite, The yeah. thing I kept thinking of— when looking at Mad-Eye Moody yeah. <laughs> through the lens of, like, close reading is those drawings where, like, if you look at it from one angle, it's, like, a beautiful young woman yeah. and she's, like, turning her face yeah. away from the illustration. But if you look at it another way, it's, like, a hag old lady with, like, a giant yeah. nose. And, like, it's both things at the same time. And Moody is very much that. Yeah, right. Like, you can see in both ways. And in this way, I feel like looking at the interaction with Harry and Cedric— yeah in contrast, is that there's no manipulation in what Harry is doing. No, that's right. And there's not even an awareness that it could manipulate. Like, Harry's in this terrible position. He's, like, hated by the school. The Hufflepuffs think he's trying to steal their, like, one chance to right. be protagonists right. in a series of books where they are <laughs> terminally sidekicks. Right. right? And they're furious with him. And he could tell Cedric, but tell him in a way that was, like, demonstrating, like, I'm trying to do you a solid buddy and have like that larger narrative in play, but that's not even in Harry's brain 
he is not operating with emotional intelligence, right? He is yeah. not trying to create a feeling. He right. is trying to create justice, right? Right, And that's the only thing on his mind. Whereas with Moody, there is a hope to create a feeling, a feeling of confidence, of assuredness, of understanding in Harry. And like, ideally, that's something a student should be leaving an interaction with a teacher gaining, right? Yeah. But it is also something that someone who wants to manipulate you, like, will yeah. give you right away. Yeah. I should have said inverse, because what's interesting is that, like, Moody is tricking Harry really deftly, but Harry does not suspect him. Yes. Harry is on the level, but Cedric is like, why are you telling me this? Right? Like, a couple of times, Cedric <laughs> says, like, right. are you trying to trick right. me? Because no one trusts Harry at the school. Well, very few people trust Harry at the school. They think he's trying to get all the glory for himself. Cedric is like, oh, you're building trust here? Or are you? Or are you actually trying to undermine me in some different way? So it's actually the exact the exact inverse of what's going on in the scene afterward. Yes. The thing that I always think of with Mad-Eye is, like, my, like, red flag when it comes to pedagogy is whenever a teenager is like, oh my God, he treats us like equals. He treats us like grownups. I'm like, that's a dangerous person, right? Because <laughs> right? that's either somebody who is flattering your self-understanding of sophistication right. and using that to manipulate you, or that is someone who is profoundly intellectually or emotionally stunted right. and like, they're <laughs> not going to be a safe person to be right. around. Right. Right. Because it is one of the weirdest things. It's like, as soon as you're like 24, you look at a 16-year-old and you're like, oh my God, a baby. <laughs> it's a tiny little baby person. And when I was 16, I felt very grown. Yeah. <laughs> I felt so in charge of everything, which also then brings us to like, oh my God, like reading this as an adult being like, they're just putting teenagers in front of I know. huge, vicious dragons. <laughs> like, they have to be 17. Okay. <laughs> okay, guys. I know. <laughs> like, that's our age limit here? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, we, we, you know, we've talked about this episode after episode, like the the lack of, of sort of administrative intelligence among the administration at Hogwarts <laughs> to get Harry out of this, right? Well, I mean, you're yeah, asking the larger question, of, which is like, should 17-year-olds be be facing dragons at all. Should anyone be doing <laughs> right? this? But like, uh, like, like there's a scene in the chapter where McGonagall, you can see it, it's over and over again. It says that she's kind of flustered and anxious when she meets Harry and takes him to yeah. the tent to go out and meet the dragons. But like, also like nobody can think of an alternative other than just shoveling Harry out there. Like, it just seems like there's so much else just to do. Like, Good luck, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi listeners, this is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith Tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information. And be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com. Thank <laughs> you. 
I think we ought to transition to the encounter with the, the dragons. Yes. This is another situation which reveals how intelligence is so individuated. Because every one of the champions approaches this challenge with a different mm-hmm. strategy. And all of them are successful in the end. They all get the egg. But they all do it differently, and some with more success than others. And their level of success seems to have less to do with, like, coming up with the right strategy and more to do with knowing how one's own skills can be applied to the challenge at hand. So, for example, you know, Harry, because he's gotten this clue, knows that his greatest gift is flying. And so he he learns the spell that can get him the tools to do that as effectively as possible. And there are other things that he does as well, which we can talk about in a minute. But then Crumb's greatest gift is also flying, Mm -hmm. right? But we learn from Ron that Crumb didn't think of that. Instead, he tries to to wound or disable the dragon, Right. right? And get around the dragon. And he succeeds, but he also ends up, by wounding the dragon, the dragon steps on some of the eggs, destroys some of the eggs. There's a point deduction for that. So, like, if he had had the insight to know his own best skills, which are flying, not violence, right? then he possibly could have done what Harry did with more success without getting docked points for the dragon crushing eggs. And also, you know, would have spared some dragon's eggs being crushed, right? Yeah. Like, that was very traumatizing. I know, right? It seems so interesting because, like... Not every one of those four champions could just say, Akio, get their broom and fly. Right. Like, that just wouldn't work for some of them. They had to figure out how they individually could best apply what skills they had to the challenge at hand. And it shows how, like, intelligence is about skillful use of what one has. Yes. I think that that is very, very true. And I also feel like when you see Harry on his broom and when you spend that moment with him, that is very clearly, like— He knows where everything is. He has this perfect clarity of understanding. And, like, nothing about the task seems as daunting to him as it did when he first conceived it because he's approaching it from such a place of strength, such a place of intelligence, such a place of understanding. As soon as everything is in the context of, like, what does he do when he's on a broom, he's completely confident. And I think that that is kind of, like, what it's like. Right. I mean, we hear that and we read that in the chapter, right? right? As soon as he gets on his broom, all his fear falls away, right? He's overwhelmed by anxiety for the beginning of this chapter, by panic, it actually says in the chapter. He actually can't imagine what it would be like to encounter this dragon while he is panicking. As soon as he gets on the broom in this place where he feels comfortable, that fear falls away. And then he can start actually doing the work of figuring out this problem, Yeah, right? He's zipping around. And it's while he's zipping around that he starts to strategize about how he's going to use his skill as a flyer to get the egg. Before that moment, he still has the plan to get on the broom, but he doesn't know what he's going to do once he's on the broom. He just knows he's got to get on the broom, right? It's right. it's being on the broom that right. allows him to slough <laughs> off all that panic and start to imagine what, what he could do. And, and that's the other thing that like the other kind of form of intelligence I think he really shows when encountering the dragon because it's not just that he's a fast flyer. And maybe this is where Crumb wouldn't have succeeded as well as Harry even had Crumb gotten on a broom. Because once Harry's on the broom, he spends a lot of time in the chapter like kind of trying to imagine how he's going to coax the dragon away from the eggs. Yeah. And so he has to like, you know, we talked about moral intelligence. There's also like emotional intelligence empathic intelligence, like the ability to imagine what what another creature is experiencing or feeling. And here we see it like across species, right? Harry is kind of has to like imagine himself in the place of the dragon (laughs) being bothered by this this pesty broom person, right? And he has to kind of... Yeah, this fly. He calls him a fly, right? And kind of coax. He has to know what it will take to coax the dragon away so we can have the opportunity to get in 
and steal the egg. And that's an emotional intelligence, right? Like somebody else up there who was just as good at flying as Harry, but who could not imagine himself into the experience of this dragon would not have been able to approach the task the same way. Yeah. The subject of emotional intelligence brings us to like the last thing, the one thing that we both really wanted to get into our 30 second summary that we didn't, which is like, this is finally when Ron and Harry like reconcile because they've been fighting for all these chapters uh, because Ron believes sort of that Harry put his name into the cup and like didn't let Ron put his name in, right? But really, Ron is just jealous. Ron is just jealous that Harry gets all of this attention and Harry knows it, right? But instead of like being compassionate with that knowledge, he's just pissed that like Ron is letting that get in the way of like being a support to him and being a friend, right? And Hermione, poor Hermione, is just interceding between the two of them, using her immense emotional intelligence to try and illuminate the situation to either of them so that like someone could make a better choice and neither of them do. But here, finally in this moment, Ron takes the necessary first step, not saying he was wrong, right? Not saying he was sorry, but stating that he now believes someone must have put Harry's name into the cup. Not just that he put someone put his name into the cup, but also I understand now that someone's out to get you. Yes, right. Like it's it's not just a prank someone's playing; that actually someone has it in for you. Right. And it's that that sense of knowing that his friend is vulnerable. Like that's also part of what I think brings them back together. Yeah, like I'm stepping into a full, intelligent understanding of what it is like to be you and not this false, envious understanding of what it's like to be you, where I only focus on the thing you have that I don't get and want. And I don't focus on the fact that you don't want that thing and the way you have it sucks, (laughs) right? Like Harry doesn't want attention and the way that he gets attention sucks and like Ron wouldn't want it. Right. So now we're going to turn to our spiritual practice. This week, we are once again doing Florilegia. Mm -hmm. In Florilegia, each of us chooses a sparklet, a line from the text that sparkled up, from the chapter that sparkled up to us. And we're going to read them together and then see what else emerges. So what line from the chapter did you select, Margaret? I selected a shockingly long line. That is the moment when Harry gets on his broom, because for me, that felt like really the heart of the chapter. And just described something that's so... Like, it's such a good feeling. So uh, that line is, As he soared upward, as the wind rushed through his hair, as the crowd's faces became mere flesh-colored pinpricks below, and the horned tail shrank to the size of a dog, he realized he had left not only the ground behind him, but also his fear. He was back where he belonged. So, like, just like, what a good feeling. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's it's a... Great line. It really captures that sense of like when you are in the place where you know you need to be, a lot of other stuff falls away and everything becomes clear. Like we talked about that in the theme conversation. Mm-hmm. As our listeners know, like I really love baseball and I was a good baseball player as a young person before pitchers started being able to throw curveballs, at which point I became a bad baseball player. <laughs> but I remember like because I had that experience, I remember just being totally comfortable hitting when I was a young person. And then a couple right. of years later, like totally uncomfortable hitting. And it's so mental, right? Like, and it's a problem that feeds on itself. The more comfortable you are, the more easily you can do the thing. 
especially with a task like hitting a baseball. And the more like you're overthinking it or whatever, like the harder it becomes to do anything. Yes, exactly. And also relates to something you said earlier in our conversation about, you know, I've I've heard that often the most skilled like baseball hitters are bad hitting coaches because so yes, much of it comes in- yes. intuitively to them. Like it ha- you have to be able to explain to someone how to fix something that's broken and you have to you have to have done it before yourself to do that. A hundred percent. What is your line, Matt? Mine comes from that moment when he when he goes to Cedric. To to me, this is the heart of the mm-hmm. chapter for me, where he like builds this moment of trust with Cedric and we can see, you know, why Harry's a champion for lots of reasons, right? That that there is just like an innate moral intelligence and goodness in him. And Cedric is asking him, like, why would you tell me this? Like should I trust you is the kind of subtext of that question. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. are you telling me about this? And internally, we hear Harry say, boy, if Cedric had seen these dragons, he wouldn't be asking this question <laughs> because Harry is so scared of the dragons and regards them as so dangerous. But what he verbalizes to Cedric is the line that I want to use. He just says, it's just fair, isn't it? And there's a pause. Mm-hmm. Like the text shows a pause there. Like he's maybe searching for a word a little bit. It's just fair, isn't it? Like that just, intuitive sense of what's fair and what's right. Yeah. That it's so clear. I mean, it almost has to be a short sentence. Because right. if he tried to explain too much about like, again, like what the philosophical ethical principles behind his decision were, then it would just lose some of its force. He's just like, this is just what's right. It's just what's fair. How could I do anything else? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it is partly because he's like, how could I do anything else? Like that's a strong moral right. intelligence, that's right? right? Okay, let's put the sentences together. Uh, let's do yours first and I'll read them together. Okay. Thank you. As he soared upward, as the wind rushed through his hair, as the crowd's faces became mere flesh-colored pinpricks below, and the horn tail shrank to the size of a dog, he realized that he had left not only the ground behind him, but also his fear. He was back where he belonged. It's just fair, isn't it? It works? Yeah. Well, tell me about it. How does it work? (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting is that we both picked moments where he's just totally intelligently oriented in the space. Yeah. Right? And so where he knows, he knows exactly the right thing to do with the information he's been given about the dragons. He knows exactly the moral right thing to do. And when he's on his broom, he knows exactly what everything means and where it's all supposed to go and what he should do next. And so it's that feeling of just like rightness, right? The feeling of, I, I keep using orientation, but it's very important to me, but it's feeling of being totally at home in the space that you're in. Yeah. And that confidence, that confident understanding that you get with that yeah. is really special. Yeah. And I think that's why the two moments fit so nicely together. Yeah. And the lines. I mean, one thing I really heard in your line was sort of this accumulation of clauses, these as clauses, as he soared upward, as <laughs> the wind rushed. As, yes. You can see, like, you can also f- almost feel the layers of stuff falling away from him as he soars up into this place that you've been describing, this place of confidence and ease yes. and intelligence, right? And so, like, he does that in this sentence. He goes, he's back where he's belonged, and then we have the additional line, the additional sparklet. It's just fair, isn't it? I mean, the thing that I was thinking was sort of a pun on the word fair, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. fair can it can mean both just and also beautiful, right? Like, I don't know. There's some, there's an intelligence to that pun, I think. Like he's up in the sky, he's up there. And like there's like the, yeah, there's a a beauty to the rightness of the thing, right? You can see as these things are falling away that it's becoming this scene, which to him, I think, 
would look beautiful, but also his in- intuition, his moral intuition is also aesthetically compelling uh, in this chapter and throughout the books. Right. And I think what I like about that double entendre is fair meaning beautiful, right? Yeah. Often relates to proportion, mm. right? And I feel like also a proportion is like what Harry is getting as he soars up above yeah. is he's getting perspective that puts everything in proportion to yeah, one another right. and it puts everything in a manageable scale that he can figure out what to do next. And that same thing is happening when you make a moral decision, yep. right? As you are able to figure out proportionally, yeah, right. like, how do I respond to these different these different stimuli right. around me? Yeah. Like, how do I navigate this and make the right choice? And so that sense of fairness where it's not, it is, it's it's a very, it's a composed kind of beauty, yeah. I think. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. The idea of proportion is so great, right? Because that's what helps him in conversing with Cedric. Like, Yes. Winning the competition is so much less important than Cedric's safety, and he knows yes. it, which is why it's obvious to him, right? Which makes you wonder why, like, Dumbledore and McGonagall and others can't see that, like, they have other options. Oh, boy. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, let's get things in right proportion and protect him. Yeah. Okay, let's put the, the sentences in the reverse order and see if anything new comes up. It's just fair, isn't it? As he soared upward, as the wind rushed through his hair, as the crowd's faces became mere flesh-colored pinpricks below, and the horntail shrank to the size of a dog, he realized that he had left not only the ground behind him, but also his fear. He was back where he belonged. To me, I had like this this sense, reading it in this way, that like, like almost like a riding off into the sunset kind of mm-hmm. sense. Like he has this like statement to to Cedric, like it's yeah. just fair, isn't it? And then like. <laughs> You know, the credits are about to run and he just kind of soars off into the sky and then we have, you know, we have the, <laughs> the credits run up. But I, again, maybe that's just because I do see like so much of the center of the books being about Harry's moral formation, his moral intuition, his goodness and his reckoning with what that goodness means, sure. how it should be lived out in the world. And so there is something a little bit sort of like, I want to reward Harry. Like he does the right thing here. So now his reward for doing the right thing should be this experience, this kind of blissful experience of doing his favorite thing as he soars above all the kind of concerns that weigh him mm-hmm. down and, and and worry him. Yeah. And I think that that also speaks to like, again, when you, especially as an adult, there is so much to consider. There's so much to understand and there are so many factors in play. And when you get genuine moral certainty. When you're presented with a situation and you're like, I know this is the right thing to do. It feels Hmm. so clean and comforting (laughs) for me. (laughs) Right. And so I think that you can kind of get that in, in terms of like how good it feels to really know something, know the right thing to do, say, be, right. Yeah. Just, and that euphoria that you get when you have that feeling. I think that that's sort of what you see the trajectory of when yeah. you do the quotes in this order. Yeah, thanks for a great sentence. Yeah, that worked out nicely. I think these sentences really built off each other. We uncovered some other sort of intelligences within the chapter, so thanks. I think so too, Matt. It was a pleasure building meaning with you. You're a great partner. Now we have a voice memo from Rebecca. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, Ariana, and the rest of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Rebecca. Um, I just finished listening to your episode on the Quidditch World Cup, and I wanted to bless all of the young lesbian and bisexual witches sitting in the audience for whom the Vila's entrance may be a very uncomfortable experience. As a lesbian who grew up in an unsupportive environment, I had many of these experiences as a child and adolescent. 
One instance I remember vividly happened in a middle school language class where a teacher showed us photos of women in traditional Central Asian wear. Much like the trio at the Quidditch match, many of the boys in my class responded by objectifying these women, and many of the girls responded like Hermione does in this chapter. Meanwhile, I was experiencing attraction to these women, but I didn't know how to process that or even label the feelings. I remember the feeling of shame welling up in me, and my heart goes out to all of the young witches in the Quidditch World Cup audience who must be experiencing something similar. We don't know much about how queer people are treated in the world of Harry Potter, but we do know that there are no openly queer characters mentioned in the books. Growing up queer is an isolating and often painful experience, and moments like these only reinforce the shame and harmful messaging. I hope that all the queer witches in the Quidditch match audience embrace this beautiful part of themselves and that they are met with only love and acceptance from the world around them. Thank you. Rebecca, thanks for that voice memo. It's a, such a problematic scene, and we did discuss some of the problems, but you're right, we didn't discuss this aspect of how problematic that scene is. And I'm, I'm really grateful for you sending us this voice memo and making it a part of our conversation and calling us to think through these parts of its problems. And and you're right, it's a problem that's not just in the scene, it's a problem that's that's extant throughout throughout the Harry Potter corpus and one we need to keep revisiting and we need friends and listeners like you to to help us remember. So thank you. Thank you. Now is the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Fatima Hussein, who is a member of the Albany, New York, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text group. She was hilarious, quick-witted, brilliant, creative, thoughtful, vulnerable, and kind. Andrea Lewis, 37, a friend, daughter, and lover of coffee and glittery things. Ewald and Marilyn Katke, Grandparents, farmers, a school bus driver, and a baker. Eloise Whiting, 97. Gran, who danced through life. Emilio Sugud Uyan, 94. A gardener, survivor, father, grandfather, and elder. Deacon Dennis Smith, 70, a husband, father, uncle, and hospital chaplain. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Margaret, it's time for our blessings now. Who would you like to bless this week? Oh, man, it feels cheap, but it has to be Hermione. Just that work of interceding between two friends. I relate to it. And when she bursts into tears, <laughs> just I feel I feel so attached to her in that moment. And so I just want to bless her for all the emotional labor that she's doing and also hope that she learns in time that, like, if you do it for other people, they never learn to do it for themselves. <laughs> yep. What is your blessing, Matt? Thanks, Margaret. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for blessing Hermione. I thought that was, that's great. We didn't talk about her enough, I feel like, in this chapter. So I'm glad that she got blessed to conclude the episode. Mm-hmm. I want to bless the Chinese fireball, we, the <laughs> dragon. We talked a little bit about this, but, the, you know, kind of very matter-of-factly, we hear that the Chinese fireball's eggs are destroyed after it's wounded. I mean, it's the only dragon 
that had an oppositional sort of strategy taken against it. It was it was mm-hmm. wounded in the encounter and started stumbling around and crushed some of its eggs. I'm a dog person, as you know, and I grew mm-hmm. up with dogs which were bred to fight. They were bred to fight bears and bulls. And I, you know, I just like this is part of human culture and evidently it's part of wizarding and and witch culture is like kind of using animals to fight. And uh, I just, yeah, I just feel bad for the Chinese fireball who was minding its own business and now is in this arena with crowds around it and it's it's being goaded into crushing its own eggs. So blessings for animals who are exploited and for the Chinese fireball. Here, here. Next week, we'll be reading book four, chapter 21, The House Elf Liberation Front with our special co-host and guest, Jackson Bird, through the theme of vulnerability. Before we close the episode and give our thanks, just a reminder, everyone, please do subscribe to commercial-free episodes on iTunes and leave a rating and review. Also, remember that we are having summer camp next summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you enjoyed hearing from Margaret and would enjoy talking to her as much as I have, (laughs) you should go to notsorryworks.com and... Join us for camp. I am going to be leading a workshop on uh, crying about music, which is something I do a lot. So I really look forward to all of you joining me in that subject and just seeing everybody in such a bucolic setting. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Gumpenkum. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thank you to Rebecca for their voicemail this week. To Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, the wonderful Margaret H. Willison, who joined me as co-host today, and to all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones this week. You and I both have Ron in our brains, but when under the yes, pressure, the circumstances, we do not sound intelligent because, because no. we both forgot to mention Ron. Okay. Um, we are well-oriented in the text, but we are not well-oriented in how long 30 seconds is <laughs> and right. how long we've been talking. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs>